Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Bernard Porte on the show, one of the co-founders of the Clos de Vol Winery in Napa Valley. Hello, sir. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Good to see you, Lee. Very nice to see you. So you were born in the Cognac region in France. Yes. I was born a, uh, a few years ago in a, on the property of my father, and my family had owned that property for since. So we cannot trace it beyond 1698. Before that, the, uh, some crazy rebels burnt the documents of the church or whatever. So anyway, so since 1698, uh, my family has been based on that same property, and I was born there in the same room as my father was born. So that's so, an area where they make a lot of brandy. And- that's the area we make cognac over there. They call it cognac, and it's a and it's an appellation controlée area. I don't remember. I think it's hundred and some thousand acres of, you uh, know, hectares of vineyards. That all belongs to you. The- oh yes, I wish, <laughs> I wish, I wish. So I was born there, and I grew up there for my uh, first uh, 10, 12 years. And after that, uh, my father moved to the Medoc, and uh, we followed him naturally. So your dad worked in uh, the Bordeaux area? He did work in the Medoc, yeah. What was he up to? Uh, he was a technical director of a nice little chateau and in, in the Poyac area. And basically, that's where I got real educated on the uh, wines and tasting. He was working at Chateau Lafitte. Your dad takes up the technical director role at, at Lafitte, and you kind of grow up around that atmosphere. Well, yes, exactly. And so, obviously, we are going to boarding school, but during the summer, we were either at uh, Lafitte or we were at my father's place in the, uh, in Charente. What was your dad like? My father was a uh, very elegant person, old style, discreet, didn't talk too much, but uh, he thought quite a bit. And uh, he was uh, not the biggest communicator, but he had a great sense of what was life was all about. So we learned quite a bit about that. And for, as far as I'm concerned, he also had, he was able to inculcate into me a very good sense of what viticulture was all about and winemaking and so on. What decades was he at Lafitte? He was at Lafitte between 1955 and 1975, 21 years. So that's kind of a transitional period coming out of the war, basically. Yes, exactly. Well, he, yeah, he went to war, unfortunately. He was a prisoner also. 
spent a few years over there. But they uh, saw after, and you know, in, in the Cognac area after the war was fairly poor. There was not much money. Uh, and my father had a very hard time making a living just from the fruit of his properties. So that's why he was he sought some other uh, opportunities of work elsewhere in a field that he liked. And it's a lot of technical advance during that period. I mean, that's when they, people start to figure out about malolactic conversion. And stuff like you, that. Yeah, a huge amount of things happened uh, in the. Uh, so my father, when I, for what I remember, my young days when he had horses, he had sheep, basically uh, doing a uh, organic viticulture. Well, it was not totally organic, but it was it was better than sustained. And so right now we are back into it. But what happened in the 60s is that you had a fair amount of discovery of chemical products, pesticides, insecticides, uh, which were good in a sense because it protected the crops. But on the other hand, there was also the discovery of the huge amount of fertilizer, mineral fertilizer. So it was a, they passed from the manure, which was organic, if you want, to uh, mineral fertilizer. And so that changed quite a bit. That changed the yield of the vines, changed everything. And now we are, in fact, uh, 50 years later, back into it that my father was practicing back in 1950s. And he inspired in you a desire to follow up in this trade. I mean, you could have done something else, but you decided to follow in your father's footsteps. It's interesting. As far as I can remember, I always wanted to be in a viticulture. Uh, I liked it. I, in summer, uh, we, you know, when I was uh, 14, 15, 16, uh, we spent the summer with my grandmother on my father's property. And uh, I was working in the vineyards, and I liked it. I was driving a tractor, uh, doing all types of things. And I really liked it. However, when time came to choose, so I, I followed that uh, that path in terms of education, and I would decide to go for a school of agronomy. But when time came to decide whether to go more for viticulture or more for enology, I thought that my perspective of the day was that you can find vineyard managers, you know, everywhere. People with good common sense who are born and raised in the vineyard, they know how to manage a vineyard. But winemaking was in full evolution, and not everybody knew how to make wine. In cognac, you know, they, you make wine by thanks to Mother Nature. You you put the grapes in the press, you press, squeeze the juice out of the press, put it into a tank. Uh, you don't even need to put yeast. It starts fermenting by itself. You don't put any sulfur because you can't put sulfur in a wine that's going to be distilled later. So it, it ferments by itself. And then uh, as soon as it finished fermenting, then you start distilling. So that's simple winemaking in the cognac, although now it's a bit more sophisticated than that, but that's still the basic rule. And while winemaking, to make wine of a Cabernet Sauvignon or Merlot or Rosé or whatever, it is a very, very different thing. To make wine to be consumed, it is a, a science and an art at the same time. So I decided to go for the School of Enology, and that's how I came out of there because I figured that I could find better opportunities in work than just with viticulture. It must have been an interesting time to go to enology school. I mean, there must have been a lot of, like you described, some changes happening. Oh, enormous. There was right the beginning of a huge change. In uh, in Bordeaux, you had the uh, Pascal and Jean Ribeiro-Gaillon, the father and the son. Jean being the father, Pascal being the son. You had the Penot, Emile Penot, who was the biggest consultant or the most knowledgeable 
in terms of practicing winemaking at the University of Bordeaux. And he was coming out, we were talking earlier about malolactic fermentation. You know, he mentioned that to me. And uh, so everything was changing. Then the Ribeiro Gaillon were very intent on studying the phenols, the colors, the tannins. That was their big uh, subject. And right now we're still working on it. So it's still exciting in my view. What was your move? How did you end up working for a wine company? Well, uh, my move <laughs> was, I would say that I didn't decide on anything. I think fate had it. And uh, basically, you know, if you remember, you know, you can't remember, but in the 60s in France, there was not very much job. Okay. I was poor for people like me, even though I had all the diplomas that I were needed. There was not much opportunity. However, so I, after my school, I went to the, to the army, do my army time in Morocco. In Morocco? In Morocco, yeah. Well, that must have been interesting. Yeah, I liked it. I really liked it. I was uh, teaching uh, agriculture in a school of agronomy of Rabat. And, they, uh, and I like the people. I like, I like everything. I like the country very much. And I was thinking of staying in Morocco for a few more years because I, I was offered a job. But then my father told me, Bernard, I talked to somebody who, who's looking for somebody with your skills. Okay, so I think if you come back from uh, Morocco, then you should go and talk to him. So I went back in uh, what was the end of June 1970, I think, went back. And then uh, at the 15th of July, I uh, had an interview with that gentleman. His name is John Golette. His mother was uh, from the Barton et Gaetier family, so he was very knowledgeable about wine. And I didn't know at that time, but he tastes also very good. <laughs> so... And he asked me because he was looking at acquiring a chateau in the Medoc. So I said, oh, well, look, I'm discussing the acquisition of a chateau. I'd like you to be my technical director. Okay, so fair, fair. But as he was negotiating and the negotiations fell through, so at the same time, he sent me all over the world. With, and I was quite young. I was 26 in those days, I think. Yeah, yeah, 26. And he sent me all over the world with the mission of finding a place where I thought we could grow grapes of high quality to make wines of the highest quality. So I went around the world for a couple of years, in fact, because I wanted to see some of the areas at different period of the year. Because, you know, every time you go visit an area, they say, oh, yeah, but, you know, the weather is not like that usually. Okay, so uh, I want to have several experiences of different types of weather. And two or three places retained my attention, really. The one that I liked most was Chile. But in those days, it was 1970, 71. It was a, a, not very, not, it was not a place where anyone would invest. It was not very politically stable. Uh, but the other place which I, which I liked and had seen that in a, on a business trip in 1968, I liked very much California. Of all the place of California, obviously, since I was born or raised in the Bordeaux area, I was thinking more in terms of red grapes than in terms of white grapes. So uh, I was looking at climate, soil, terroir, with kind of a Cabernet Sauvignon sunglasses or filtering glasses. And so of all the places that I saw, Napa Valley really retained my attention the most. So coming from the Bordeaux perspective, Napa seemed the most climate. Yes. Yeah. And I realized the weather was warmer. I mean, California was already warmer than Bordeaux, and still is. Uh, so I knew the wines would be a bit different. And then all the wines at, at that time, 
uh, they tended to be a bit too hot for my French trained palate. A little too much alcohol. Yes, and the alcohol showed. So the wines were a bit too powerful, as we say. And so I, I thought, well, what if I could find some place lower? So I was thinking of the area of Canaros, but at that time Canaros was too cold and not much grew except a bit of Pinot Noir, a bit of a uh, Chardonnay, but that was it. So, so by accident, one day, I was driving my car down Silverado Trail uh, with the window open because it was overheating with air conditioning. <laughs> it was a big charger, you know, 360 horsepower and still overheating with air conditioning. Anyway, I, I was my arm out of the window. Then all of a sudden, after going the, behind that hill where now you have the uh, vineyards of a uh, Pine Ridge, Lawrence of Pine Ridge, Stagley Pine. So also, all of a sudden, going downhill, it was cooler. So, and it happened several days in a row. So I decided that if I couldn't regulate the temperature during the day, uh, and at that time I knew much less about the various microclimates in Napa Valley than I do now. But uh, if I couldn't do that, at least if I had cool night, I would be able to get the wines a bit fresher uh, that I was seeking. So that's how I discovered that area. And I recommended that to Mr. Golette back in, 19, uh, in November 1971. And he uh, found he had some partners invested with them uh, in December 71. And after that, that area became known for its own microclimate, which is it's now known as the Stagsleep District of Napa Valley. So at the time, it wasn't really a named place. No, 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 no. That, the name of, well, Napa Valley came as an appellation per se, I think in 1979, and Stagsleep District became known, I don't know, in the, I don't remember, in the mid-80s, I think. So who was there, like uh, Nathan Fay? No, I, okay, yeah, and Nathan Fay was the first person who had planted Cabernet Sauvignon, and those grapes were purchased by Charles Krug, and Charles Krug was always very happy with the grapes coming from uh, Nathan Fay. After that, came Dick Stersner. Uh, he planted some grapes there. Uh, and then came a, a few other people, quite a few people after that. You know, Phelps bought some land there and so on. And obviously, Stagley Point Cellars started developing some vineyards. Uh, I was at Duval at the time. Uh, we started developing our own vineyards. And uh, right across the street, uh, Robert Mondavi had a big uh, several hundred acres of a uh, of land, which he developed in Cabernet Sauvignon, Sauvignon Blanc, and so on. But he developed little by little. And after that, you had, who was there already? Uh, just in those same days, uh, uh, the Sea Vineyard, which is now Silverado Trail, was being developed in the early 70s also, or mid-70s. The vineyard of uh, what is now Schaefer Wineries were being developed. So it all happened at the same time, basically, between... Apart from Fay, uh, Sterzner, I think he started in 67 or 68. So apart from Fay, uh, everybody else is new, basically. <laughs> That's in the environment within which I evolved when I was at Clodivin. And was there much Cabernet Sauvignon planted at that area of Napa at all? I mean, not just the Stags Leap. No. Interestingly enough, what where we invested, there was nothing. I mean, there was a bit of Zinfandel, naturally. But there, there was, was prunes, there was hay, there was alfalfa, there was cattle. And in the old days, oh, there's that old that winery, which is known as Tesleep Winery, 
In those days, they had Chenin Blanc, they had Petit Syrah, a bit of Cabernet. So it was a mixed bag. And then the Cabernet Sauvignon became a fashion, and then more and more people planted Cabernet Sauvignon. Plus, it's perfect area for Bordeaux varieties. So at the time, it wasn't a guarantee that someone would come in and say, let's obviously plant Cabernet Sauvignon here. No, uh, when we developed our own vineyard, we were the southernmost Cabernet Sauvignon planting in Napa Valley. Although, if I go onto Highway 29, Trefferson, I think, had some Cabernet Sauvignon there. But they were all... So it's not regular, but as a rule, uh, there was not Cabernet Sauvignon. And I was told, no, below that, it doesn't ripen. You can't plant Cabernet Sauvignon, which was true at the day. But they, uh, now you have Cabernet Sauvignon all over Napa Valley. It sounds like for you, you were originally doing a kind of consulting on a shorter term basis, and then you ended up kind of getting roped in for the long term. I mean, <laughs> how did that? How did that happen? Yeah, you asked me. I decided. I didn't decide anything. So yeah, so I, I came as a consultant, and I recommended Mr. Golette, and Mr. Golette had uh, some other partners, which uh, was then they started developing the Clos Duval project, and then in April '72. Mr. Goulet, I uh, say, Bernard, why don't you go to California? They need a bit of help to refine the project and to see the equipment and so on. So I say, okay, well, it'll be a couple of weeks. So I come here in late April, 72. Uh, and a couple of weeks later, I call my wife. I say, look, uh, I'm going to be here a bit longer. We had been married a month and a half. Uh, so she came. And in those two weeks, they evolved. They say, oh, well, you are here. You know, so we went through the summer. You are here. Won't you stay for the harvest? Okay. So I, at that time, you know, I didn't speak very much English. I had an accent much worse than today. And uh, so I called my brother, who was also a trained enologist and who was a good practical mind. And eight days later, he came to come and help me uh, for the harvest 1972. So basically, the two French brothers who barely spoke any English and knew nothing about California conditions, we started crushing the first grapes for Clos du Vin. That was interesting. And obviously, as I said, we knew nothing, but everybody, you see, in Napa Valley, it's very welcoming. And there was always all type of people who were willing to help you, give you some advice and so on. And Dick Stersner was one of those who gave me some good advice. We, so we started there with nothing. We had we had bought some uh, tanks. We put the tanks in the back of a winery that was called Couvezan when they were in Calistoga. And so the rent was to pour the concrete. So pour the concrete, that would be your rent, and you can bring your tanks. So we brought our tanks, we brought our, our pumps, and we started making our wine there. We had four tanks. That's uh, That was interesting. So were there other French people in it working in the valley at that time, really? At that time, no. At that time, I was the first French person coming and in getting installed in Napa Valley since André Tchelichev, who came in the late 30s, when he came to work for the Despin family, uh, the owners of Beaulieu Vineyard. And how many wineries would you say that there were in the Napa Valley at that time? Okay, I think that the Robert Mondavi was the winery number 18 in Napa Valley, and I think Clos Duval, when we got our license, uh, we were winery number 24, 25. You know, I didn't pay attention to the time, but that's pretty much the numbers. So there was not much. You know, the, you had the big four or five. You got Charles Krug, Christian Brothers, Ingle Nook, uh, Beringer. 
You had Joe Heitzworth starting, a uh, Sterling starting in 68, and Spring Mountain started in the late 60s also. So it was just burgeoning, but it was not fully developed. They must have found you as interesting as you found them. I mean, I could see them being really open with the knowledge and giving you some good advice about the local territory, but they probably had a lot of questions for you about, like, what do people do in Bordeaux? And, I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you, yeah, they, 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 yes, it went both ways. But for me, I was trying to settle in Napa Valley, and their help was much more useful to me than whatever help I could have given them. But I bet you were talking to a generation of people, a lot of which hadn't actually been to Bordeaux. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And they, uh, the Robert Mondavi was one of the first ones who went. They, uh, I, I know that they... Uh, Rick Foreman also went to Settimilio and they were all taking notes and so on and bringing their ideas back. And the most interesting thing is that all those people who started travel, they were all part of a group that was called the Wine Technical Group. And so you had uh, Andre Chelichev, you had Robert Mondavi, Dick Stasner, uh, you had Chuck Carpey, quite a few people of the old generations that were there and exchanging it was amazing because I come from a country in, in 1960 in the Bordeaux winemaking, everybody played very close to the chest. And I have the secret of the good winemaking. You don't. Okay. And so, and here I come in a fermenting tank, if you want, a fermenting cauldron where everybody is sharing everything. Oh, the big surprise for me. But I really enjoy that. And that positive spirit really or positive attitude is really what kept me in this country for so long. Uh, at that time, California was really focusing on the varietal. In fact, the labels were all varietal. Uh, and for me, I was coming from a country where you want to have complexity. And to have complexity, you don't want to focus on only one variety, uh, put the blends together to get the most complex wine possible. So, and when I was telling my colleagues, you know, they are asking me, but Bernard, why, why are you toning down the intensity of Cabernet Sauvignon with Merlot or Cabernet Franc? I said, look, my interest is to make the best wine possible, the most complex possible, and I need to blend. So, and while my colleagues, what they were doing to try to get some complexity, they, they were kind of stuck on 100% varietal until a bit later, but they were getting complexity by buying grapes from different areas in Napa Valley. So it was more intense in Cabernet Sauvignon. It was more complex than one, just one block, but it didn't have the, in my view, it didn't have the roundness or the flesh that is brought by Merlot, for example, or some of these elements uh, that, of violet, of rose that can come from Cabernet Franc. So that was the biggest difference. It was we were looking at each other with uh, respect, but my style of winemaking was not what they were after. The five mottos that I've had as a winemaker, and much of that has been taught me by my father, is first you want to express the terroir, okay? Terroir, balance, elegance, complexity, long finish, and that the wine goes well with food. Those are, I, I said five, but that's six. 
those are the key elements of my winemaking philosophy. To this day, I still go for it. I think that the wines I would make right now are more generous than they were uh, a while ago. But I still want a wine that's go well with food. Uh, I don't want wine that's going to tire me, cut at me at the knees after a quarter of a glass. And I, I want to, it, it's essential, you know. I was raised in a country, and now it's happening here, where food and wine are really going together. And that's part of the pleasures or enjoyment of life. Well, it's happening now in uh, plenty in Napa Valley, but everywhere in the, in the United States. And and I I wanted that. So so that's why the wines of Clos du Val, as a rule, were a bit less powerful than many of the wines made by our colleagues. And therefore, they are a bit less explosive in the nose in the days than they are right now. But I wasn't worried by that because my father told me a long time ago, say, look, concentrate on the taste. If the wine is well-balanced at the beginning, it will age well-balanced. So it will stay in balance always through its life. And the nose will come out later. So I was really not worried until, obviously, uh, in the late uh, 90s, then all of a sudden, all those blind tastings uh, starting to put a huge emphasis on intensity of the nose. And so that was a big handicap that I had. Before that, I mean, in that 1970s period where you're starting to make wine, you must have seen BRICS numbers that were unlike the BRICS numbers you'd been hearing about in school, I would imagine. Right, for sure. In fact, one of the key elements of our 1972 harvesting decisions were based on that because I was, uh, so, you know, it, but in France, assume that a good year in those days, you got the uh, 11 and a half, 12 and a half percent alcohol. Okay. And here they were getting more in 13 and a half, 14 percent already. So I said, well, look, I want to do better than France because we are in California. So we don't have to be. Uh, that low, plus we want to have ripe character. And my friends were telling me, no, Bernard, you've got to harvest at 23 and a half, 24, 25. Okay. And I said, no, no, no. So I decided to cut the pair in two between a good year in France and what my colleagues were telling me. And I, I cut in the middle and I harvested at 23 bricks. And it proved to be a very good decision because in 1972, in October 72, there was a huge rain, tropical storm that came through, and during eight days really that, uh, prevented people from going in the vineyard and harvesting. And after that, then there were some issues with the quality of the grapes still on the vines. So we were lucky that our decision allowed us to make a beautiful 1972 wine at the time where most people in 1972, I don't know that they are so proud of what happened as a whole. So what was the vineyard like at the time? I mean, what well, had been... Well, we, we had started planting in the spring 1972. So we planted 50 acres in the spring 72, 50, 73, and 20 in 74. Uh, but uh, we had long-term contracts with a, uh, a few other people, and one of them was Dick Stasner, which I mentioned earlier. And he was supplying quite a bit of our purchased grapes until 1978 at that time. Uh, we became uh, much more self-sufficient, so we didn't have to buy as many grapes. Uh, we bought uh, Zinfandel grapes from uh, what's now Howell Mountain in the Anguini area, 
happening here. There was beautiful, uh, all the Zinfandel vineyard. And in those days, the Zinfandel was interplanted with Petit Syrah. And when you co-fermented them together, it was beautiful Zinfandel. So 72, 73 were coming from that area were just beautiful Zinfandel. In those days, we're making only two labels, Cabernet Sauvignon, which was a blend of Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, and Cabernet Franc, and they are in Zinfandel. must have been very exotic for you to work with Zinfandel. I mean, you wouldn't have had that chance in Bordeaux. No, it was very intriguing because when I first decided to check the Zinfandel grapes that we're going to harvest, they, the bunches were quite big, you know, way bigger than the bunch of Cabernet Sauvignon. The berries were big, but the sugar was coming up only slowly, especially in, uh, in the elevations of uh, Howell Mountain. And then I realized that all of a sudden, there were some berries that were still pink and others that were already starting to raisin. So it was a bit difficult to say when do, because when you take the sugar sample, you try to avoid the pink ones and you try to avoid the raisin ones. But you know that the truth is somewhere in the middle because when you take the samples, you don't take any of those pink, don't take any raisins, and yet you know that those guys are going to influence the ultimate sugar, especially the raisins, because the raisin surrenders its sugar only throughout the being rehydrated during the fermentation. So that was very interesting, but it turned out good. And then I was interested, intrigued by the aromas. It was wild blackberries all over the place. It was, it was also a bit more alcoholic than Cabernet Sauvignon. But it had some good tannins, but the tannins were softer than those of Cabernet Sauvignon. The color in those days was not quite as deep, uh, dark, or red as they are seeking right now. Uh, and then I, I aged that first Infandel in uh, barrels, brand new French oak barrels. And it turned out to be a pretty good deal. It really balanced the wine out dramatically well. Because I could see that being a big difference. I mean, I, I bet there weren't a lot of people using new French barrels for Zinfandel. I don't time. know that there was any. <laughs> I, I don't remember. I never asked the question to anybody, but I don't think so either. I agree with you. Did you start to see more and more French oak influence coming into the Napa Valley in the 70s? Oh, yes. Big time. Big time. Because in those days, many people were using quite a bit of American oak. And French oak only came a bit later. And the French oak was, well, from different forests, obviously, but also aged in a very different manner. Uh, the barrels were made with a very different technique. And little by little, people who travel back to Europe say, well, if they are using, you know, if Chateau so-and-so is using brand new barrels in their wine, and wine ends up pretty good, we should do that too. So they started to bring um, barrels in, well, for me, I bought my first barrels were coming from Demtos in the Bordeaux area. They arrived in January 73. During that decade of the 70s, how were people evolving what they were doing in the vineyard or in the winery around you? What were you seeing? In the vineyard, it was fairly traditional. Uh, it was basically two rootstocks, uh, St. George, and uh, which is a rupestris, and uh, EXR1. Uh, which is a cross with a rupestris also. But that was basically the two, and maybe there were a few others, but those were the two most used. And that, was, that lasted a very long time, until the late 80s, I think. 
in the late 80s, then the Valley and the California started seeing some pockets of phylloxera. And you know, how things happen, you never know. But I would say that every time you move from extensive to intensive, that's when problems happen in Mother Nature, always. So all of a sudden, maybe there was too much haste in producing more and more rootstock, and there was a bit less attention paid in nursery towards phylloxera insect, which people didn't know was around too much. I, I don't know, but they, it's really when the viticulture intensified that the phylloxera problem arrived. The demand for new vineyards really skyrocketed. Yes, yes right. Yeah. And, and that's in the mid-80s. And at the same time, we started to see these outbreaks of phylloxera. Yeah, yeah. So the, the, after the first one was in the mid-80s. And I know that our vineyard, we didn't have to replant it until we started pulling out in 1992. Because the original was on AXR1. AXR1, yeah. Uh, the older Cabernet and half the Zinfandel, oh, Cabernet Merlot, Cabernet Franc, and half the Zinfandel were on the XR1, and one half of the Zinfandel was in St. George. But the uh, XR1 was really the top uh, producer. It was very good for volume without excess. It was very good for ripening. It was beautiful uh, rootstock. Anyway, that was the end of it. <laughs> so in the 70s, the evolution in the vineyard, there was not much. Uh, it was planting 8 by 12. Some people were pruning, head prune, like the old Zinfandel and so on. And our, our Cabernet, we planted not head prune, but we planted with a T trellising, which is a T on top. So you have two wires on top. And when the vines grow, then you make sure that the canes go to the inside of those two wires and fall to the outside. California sprawl, right? Is that what they call well, it? Well, yeah, you can call it that. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. you have the dappled sunlight kind of through the canopy. Yeah, and it, it, in fact, it's very good. And I, with the the climate changing, I wonder whether we're not going to come back to that particular type of trellising to protect the berries from being burnt by the sunlight. Because that shades the berries and it keeps more humidity inside. Yeah, well, that's a plus and a minus, eh? <laughs> Because if it's too humid, then it's a, a really a problem. But the, the other the other problem with that uh, tea trellising or that California sprawl, as you call it, is that it's bad for some leaf hoppers. They they don't like too much the light, so they are inside in the shade and brrr, when they, you walk they, along, they, they fly out at you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So especially during certain types of the so, day. especially you know, uh, well, it depends, but at harvest time. Uh, and you've got some people who don't want to treat against leaf, uh, those little uh, leaf hoppers. And those are not, they don't damage the vines. They just suck the, the leaf, okay? And uh, so that's all. So, so basically, that was viticulture. You know, it's very simple. Everybody was plying disc in the field. So it was very simple. And there was not very many issues in terms of uh, vineyard health. And then after that, in the 80s, then things started changing a little bit. People started planting a bit more narrow, uh, more dense. You know, uh, when we started planting, we had 425 vines per acre, and uh, now most vineyards are 2,000 vines per acre. Look totally different, probably. Yeah, and they they've got vertical trellis just about everywhere. Extremely, it's beautiful, 
what changes according to the vineyard owners is the height of the vineyard. Some are hedging a bit lower, others are hedging a bit higher. So you they're doing vertical shoot positions. Yes. And they're, they have fairly high trellises. Yes. So, But some of them are also a bit lower. If you go to the vineyards of Opus 1, they are lower than the majority of the vineyards. But that was a French influence, right? Right, yeah, yeah, right. And, and that happened in the mid-80s, in fact. So, and now, and now with the, the people are playing with the orientation of the sun. So, there is a special angle that some people are seeking. So, it's very interesting. You see some vineyards, all the new vineyards that must follow the same advice of the same consultant. They all plant in one direction. Okay. Kind uh, of a diagonal. Well, diagonal depends from you where you look. Right, right, <laughs> right, right. Sure. Compared with north and south line, yes. Yeah, it's it's a little bit uh, from northeast to southwest, if you want. Try to get a different exposure to the yeah. sun over its curve, I guess. Right, and uh, some people are trying to make sure that at the uh, at noon, when the sun is at the highest, then it's sitting, it's on top of the vineyard a little bit. On the other hand, the danger with that is that as the sun moves and sets to the west, then the, the side sees much more direct heat and light. But uh, the other people will tell you that, yes, but when it's like this, uh, the, the southern side and the northern side see an equal amount of light. So look, in viticulture, everybody is right. And everybody has got a bit of truth. And what about the winemaking? I mean, did you see changes happening around you in the 70s and 80s as people started to explore new things? In the 70s, it was pretty traditional way of making wine. I would say that little by little, the directive has been towards more powerful uh, sugar. You got to remember that in those days, there was a fair amount of the acreage of vineyard that was belonging to independent growers. And a grower, by nature, always wants to pick his grapes as fast as possible so he doesn't get caught by the October rains. Uh, so there was always a bit of pressure at the winery level to accept grapes, even though they were not quite as ripe as one would want. So I remember the contracts that they, uh, Robert Mondavi had. He will say, okay, look, the base will be an... I assume that the base will be 22 for the reds, will be 21 for the whites. Some of my contracts were like that too. But I was never, I never paid bonus for higher sugar. However, I had the privilege of deciding when to pick. So you could not pick your grapes until I told you when to pick. And when you're a bigger winery, it is not so feasible. So, uh, and money talks. So when you can get a big bonus because your grapes come at 24, 25, then it's a good incentive. So that, but there was already that race towards more sugar. But I don't know whether the race for more sugar was to counterbalance those people who were bringing their grapes at the lower sugar. I don't know that. I'd never asked the question, in fact, so I don't know. In terms of, you know, other things that you saw happening inside the winery, what was going on? Well, the, the big advantage of starting a winery in California in 1972 is that you start from scratch. So you don't have all the equipment. All the equipment you buy is all new. The tanks, all stainless steel. You don't have to deal, I mean, at my level, okay, the, other, the older wineries, they had different issues. 
But for me, I had to buy a new a new crusher, a new hopper, all that stainless steel, and new pumps, new hoses, stainless steel tanks of various sizes, and all the tanks were jacketed. Okay, that was luxury as far as French winemakers are concerned. It was luxury. Sure, the, the, the first three or four years, my tanks were manual control of cooling. Okay, so I mean, sometimes I had to stay late or get up early to make sure that my tanks were cooling. But that's a big advantage over those who didn't have any of that. There was a dream come true for a, French, a young French winemaker to start a winery at that time. So here, it's a dream. And then you bring French new barrels. So what else do you want? <laughs> what was the reception to the wines in the market when Clodoval started to be released? What were people telling you? First, I knew nothing about selling wine. So, oh, because I, we, going back to my own story, that the first two weeks I came, and then I was illegal for a while, uh, and then finally got my uh, green card. And so my two weeks went for two years. And in fall 74, then I had to uh, start thinking of selling the wine. And I, uh, that has been bald uh, two months before. And I had no clue. Uh, I'm not trained as a salesman. I had no clue. So I was lucky to meet, the, uh, to have some friends, and one of them was Michael Richmond. And he was the sales manager for Fremont Abbey in those days. And he told me, uh, he gave me a list. You know, Michael, how do I do? I've never done. Okay. So he gave me a list of about 20 uh, retailers throughout California. And he said, now what you do, pick your bag, put your balls in the bag, and go around with and have your client taste. And that's how I did. Cold call uh, on the, some key doors. And so the wine was very well received. At about the same time, I met somebody whom I had met at Lafitte, who was working with my father or dealing with my father as an importer. And he was interested in uh, starting distribution of the wines of Clodeval. So he started selling them on the East Coast, and I was doing my part on the West Coast. And so uh, the combination of those two efforts of sales were good. Interestingly enough, uh, the Cabernet Sauvignon was the most popular on the East Coast because it reminded, it was not like the typical California wine. It was more French in style. Okay, so they liked that. And on the West Coast, the Zinfandel was a locomotive driving a train because, oh man, that's a Zinfandel, that's different. So, because in those days, Zinfandel was kind of the American variety. So that's how it started. And I would tell you that in Southern California, it was a bit more difficult because over, at that time, market was more for white wine. Uh, I think in those days, the public drunk, apart from uh, martinis, uh, they were drinking by 60% or 70% a white wine. And so they say, Bernard, they told me, Bernard, good, your, your rate is good, but they, uh, come back to see me when you have some white wine because my clients don't want red wines. Okay. So it was kind of funny. It's a man. <laughs> Who's so, your uh, collaborator on East Coast? It was a uh, Robert Haas. Okay. It was Robert Haas selection. Sure. From Vineyard yeah, Brands. From Vineyard Brands, yeah. And they... Uh, I met him, I, uh, he came and tasted the wines, liked it. And so he, he was very influential in the start of the market of uh, Clos Duval uh, through the Midwest and the, uh, he had Chicago, uh, Chicago to, I don't know whether he had Texas or not, but anyway, all that part towards the East. 
So there was some embrace of Cabernet from California. Oh, oh, yes, yes. But it was interesting. But I've got to say that in those days, the market for wine was much more on the East Coast than on the uh, West Coast. And uh, most of the buyers of wines, they were Italian, they were mostly Europeans, and they wanted something that was not too far away from what they were used to drink. And what were the price points at that time? I mean, were you coming the in? Cabernet Sauvignon was $6 a bottle at retail, full price, and the Zinfandel was $5 a bottle. Yeah. And how did that stack up to the European models, like the wine your dad had made? I mean, how much would that have been? In those days, maybe a Chateau Lafitte was maybe $20 yeah. a bottle. So it was considerably less. Oh, yes, yes. So yes. it offered strong value in the market. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, except you know for I mean. the name. <laughs> but, yeah. I mean, here was the same grape made by a French winemaker yeah. in California yeah. for six bucks, whereas the, the famous name is quite a bit more than that. Yeah, that's true. Four that's times true. as much. Right? Well, yeah, but Lafitte was the top. Yeah. It yeah, still yeah. is, but it was the top at that time. But it's still a Porte wine. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, <laughs> just joking around. <laughs> yeah, I like it. <laughs> I'd love it. Did your dad give you any further advice as you were? My father uh, was a man, he, he was giving advice, but not direct, not so much directly. I remember he came in 1978 for the birth of uh, our third daughter, our third child. And I was dealing with a vintage 1977. That was very unusual, very unusual. Uh, it was powerful. It was more tannic than usual. It was beyond the scope of my real comfort, if you want. So I I invited my father to come and taste. It was in June. I invited him to come and taste and say, okay, dad, can can you help me? And he, after tasting the wine, say, no, Bernard, I can't help you. Those are not the wines I know. And I never knew whether he told me that because he wanted me to swim or because he really felt uh, that it was not his style. The same reason I was asking him to help me was also a barrier for him, I suppose. And maybe a little bit of both were in his head. So the way I learned for him is walking in the vineyard. He wouldn't tell, say, too much, but he would explain to me, okay, this vine has got this, that uh, disease. Or, or when we were, I was working with him in the vineyard at harvest time because I was helping him take the sugar of the grapes at harvest time. And uh, so he would tell me, okay, see this, that's Cabernet Sauvignon on this block. It always ripens before or after this other block because that, that, and that. Okay. You see the Merlot, we planted it over there because it's a cooler area. It's a heavier soil and Merlot does better on heavier soil than Cabernet. You don't get much Cabernet quality on this soil is too heavy and so on. So, all and when we're tasting the wine, and he would say, "Okay, that's the wine first year, that's the wine second year, and that's the wine third year." In those days, they were keeping the the wine three years in the cellar, and then and then he would say, "Okay, now you remember last year, this second year wine that we're tasting today. Last year, do you remember how it was? Oh man, I wish I'd listened a bit more intently, because but you know, uh, after hearing that dozens of times, it." seeps into you and i would say that i didn't know i knew those things but little by little as i was living my own life then all that education that i got 
all those words of wisdom that he gave me that that I didn't pay enough attention, they all came back and have proved to be very helpful through my whole professional life. And how are the vintages stacking up? 72, we're lucky it was normal vintage, but some people got caught by heavy rains. 73, all of a sudden, now all of us, all of us, we're very concerned, it was a cool year to start with, but we're all concerned that the rains would come early again. But the vines were not ripening quite as fast as normal. So it was an issue, we were a bit scared. And for me, I had only four tanks in which to ferment. So I had to, uh, and I was receiving more grapes. So I had to say, uh, to time uh, my, the arrival of my grapes at times that were not the best. You know, sometimes it came a bit more unripe than I would have wanted. The last one came a bit more ripe, but one and the other. But 73 was a low alcohol wine, uh, not very much tannin, that one goes with the other, uh, and uh, 11.8%. That was it, yeah. Well, uh, 72 was 12.8%. 74 were 13.2%. Beautiful year. Just everything by by the California book, if you want, in terms of weather, crop harvest, beautiful fruit. You could smell the fruit in the crusher. It was so beautiful. 75 was a bit more difficult year, cooler year. We harvested all the way into November there. Uh, but good tannins, uh, very elegant, more European, if 74 was Californian, 75 was European because it was more uh, restrained. 76, drought year, first drought year. And uh, I had to leave some vineyards with grapes unharvested because you had only pips and skin. And you know the owners didn't like it. They wanted me to go pick it. I said, no, there's nothing there. There's only, it would, be, would have been very acid. It would have been undrinkable. So very small crop, 76. Uh, 77, second year of, of a drought, except that there was some good rain in the spring, and that saved it, okay? But it was still a drought. It was beautiful, intense, a bit riper than my own standards at the time, and uh, good tannins, beautiful color and everything. And so 78, another 74, similar thing, very fruity, uh, juicy. In 78, all the grapes came at 23.5 bricks. So that was my standard of the day, okay? But they all came at that level, all. So uh, alcohol, 13.5, 13.6, something like that. Uh, and then after that, 79, a cooler year again, cool year. Tannins were rougher. There was more of an austere year, not quite as generous. Same relation between 75 and 74 as 79 and 78. Interesting. After that, 80 was not a great year. It was a bit watery, as far as I'm concerned. 81, another short year. 82, most bountiful year. Beautiful, elegant, classic. It was the Bordeaux wine uh, of uh, Clos Duval, if there was any, the 1982. But there was so much. In those days, we were not thinning the grapes. Where Whatever God was giving us, that's what we picked. Okay. No green harvest. No green harvest, none of that, no. And uh, so it started after that. And so at Clos Duval, we had to come with three different labels of Cabernet Sauvignon to be able to go through the inventory we had, the, uh, we had the gathered and so on. So uh, after that, 83 was an, another cool year, very elegant. Most disappointing for me because it should have had some nose and because it had the fruit in the mouth, but the nose never came up. Okay, so 84, another short year, 85 better, and so on, can go. And now I don't remember all of that. 
<laughs> Over those that run of years, did you start to see what you thought of as really the Stag's Leap character emerge? I mean, beyond the fact that it was colder temperature, did you see something? Yeah, what I yeah, it, it's the velvetiness, the velvetiness, good deep color, maybe not quite as deep as some other areas of Napa Valley, but by my standard, deep enough. Ruby, ruby red, or sometimes ruby purple, but never ruby black. In the aroma, it's I describe the stack leaf string as a half moon, very broad, and so like this. So it never jumps out at you, but it's there. It's filling your nostrils, if you want, or your nose, or whatever it smells. Uh, and that's and in terms of a Tannins, the tannins are, are there, but they're on the softer side. So that's Texlip district. It, it really, it, and, and now every winemaker has got a different style. Obviously, you've got some that have got to be the rock, others got to be the gravel, others that have got the pure loam. But those are the characteristics, in my view, of Texlip district. And were you finding the wines have aged well? I found 10 years is no problem. You know, yeah, well, years. you can taste right now the 72 of Claude Duval is still very good. Well, I mean, I, I can't, but no, if you well, can that, offer me an opportunity. Well, we'd have to go to Australia because my brother has more than I have. <laughs> oh, you gave him the lion's share or you drink more? No, because he was the importer of Claude Duval at the point, uh-huh. and, then, and then he stopped importing and he kept all the inventory. That was that. So you were, you were thinking that it was going to be a long-aging style, and in fact, yes. it turned out to be... I, want, I wanted that, but I was trained that way. Uh, you know, remember what I told you about the aroma, okay? My father told me, no, the aroma comes. If the wine is balanced, the aroma will come out. Well, in 83, it never came out too good. Uh, 1980 either. But uh, some years, like uh, 79, came out, uh, 80, 87, 85, they, they, it came out. And for me, uh, I was kind of educated in the long-lasting type of wines made in Medoc. I was not thinking at all the American way, I, I was really going for long-term. And I still, I still think I'm right, but the market is, has evolved into a buy now, drink tomorrow more. And what surprised you over that period of time? I mean, you came for two weeks, you stayed for decades. Well, life was so busy for me. I would say that you would have to ask the question to my wife because she would have a slightly different answer because she was left dealing with the day-to-day thing at home, the raising of the kids and so on. But I was very busy and I was traveling a fair bit too. So for me, I was kind of blind. I was just forging ahead and that's it. And in fact, in this business, as in any other business, I think that you have to work 110%. If you work only 100%, other people pass by you. And so that was my approach. I was working as hard as possible uh, to be as successful as possible. And I enjoyed not every minute, but just about every minute of it. Bernard Porte, one of the co-founders of Clodoval, he's enjoyed just about every minute of it. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you, Ewan. Bernard Porte, one of the co-founders of Clodoval. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose, 
and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tanoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. This interview was made possible with the assistance of Napa Valley Vintners, a nonprofit trade association committed to promoting and protecting the Napa Valley.